Well, we continue the long, arduous journey through 1 Samuel. We are on the latter half of 1 Samuel chapter 30. If you are new uh, with us, we've been walking through this book for about nine months. We have tonight, uh, God willing, next week, and then we will be moving on to the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, talking about uh, what it looks like to follow Jesus, and that series will be called Follow me. But as we walk through uh, the second half of 1 Samuel 30 tonight, uh, we are talking about what it looks like for us to view all of our life, so your circumstances, um, your relationships, the ups and the downs, the ebbs and the flows of life, whether it be something happening today, this week, or uh, maybe 20 years ago in your past. We see everything through what we call the gospel lens, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. You see, first. Samuel chapter 30, um, as we saw in the first 15 verses last week, is a historical narrative, just like the rest of 1 Samuel. And it shows uh, David, who left to go fight with the Philistines, he left voluntarily his community in Ziklag. And when he came back, he found the Amalekites, uh, a a group of people that God had told uh, Moses and Joshua a long, long time ago, hundreds of years earlier, that they needed to wipe these people out because they were in the promised land. And God said, they uh, don't honor me. They uh, don't love me. I want you to, uh, I want you to, to take them out. And uh, that's a whole nother sermon uh, for another time. But they didn't do it over the years. And now um, these people had overtaken Ziklag and they had taken all of the women, the kids, all the possessions. And David and his 600 men come back and they find out, wow, everything's gone. And they're devastated. They're heartbroken. And then they chase after them. They conquer them. They rescue the women and children. And there is restoration. And so when we look at the Bible as a whole, Now, this is both the good news of Jesus, the gospel, and the whole story of the Bible. And we see four main components. You could add one or two uh, to this. But in general, what we see is creation. So Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, We see the fall. So we are created in God's image, but we have the capacity to make decisions and choose God or choose anything else. And that is uh, what has led us to sin. And so all of creation fell, as we call it. And we since then have been, or since that time, we went through the Old Testament where mankind uh, served God. They tried to sacrifice for their sins through the Old Testament sacrificial system and a variety of other means. And they were waiting for the third part of God's story, which is redemption. And so redemption was um, Jesus coming 2,000 years ago, living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death on the cross, and then Oh, downstairs. No, it's all good. Yep, you can just head through. No, we didn't think this out very well. We should have had it uh, the other way. You are not alone. But if you just go right down those stairs and take a left, you will find. uh, we got child dedication training going tonight, just in case. Um, Wouldn't have been awesome if we would have switched it up, and and I would have been down there, and then they would have come up here and just started teaching you about your kids, and you'd be like, what in the world's going on? But anyway. We didn't, and now we got to redirect some folks. So, redemption through Jesus 2,000 years ago, and then since then, for the last 2,000 years, we've been in part of a time here in humanity that we call restoration, as God is making all things new. So, as we look at this story in 1 Samuel 30, we see 
this historical narrative, but doesn't it feel like it's pointing us to something greater, something bigger? And when we believe it is, it's pointing us to not just David and his conquest, but Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross, this, this, this Bible. So let me ask you, um, in the last week, have you started to see your circumstances different? Uh, are you seeing life differently uh, through what we call the gospel lens, seeing everything through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the story of God. Uh, I think you can see Christ in just about anything, uh, even the silly stuff. Yesterday, uh, Silas, my little boy, he's two, and he was in my office. He stopped in uh, for a couple minutes, and he was just gathering random things all over my office. Don't ask me why I have all of these. Of course, the cross makes sense here, this little wooden cross. And then this little tiny soldier guy, someone left this in my office at one point, and he, he went and grabbed that. And then this rock, this stone, I'm not sure where I got this, but he loves it. He calls it my cool rock. And he had all these things, and he was playing with them. And I didn't think anything of it um, until he, as many two-year-olds do, uh, went to the bathroom, except he's not potty trained, so the bathroom just means his diaper. And Tara, um, she smelled it immediately, and she's like, oh my, that's, that is disgusting. And he kicked the door shut, and now I got a tiny office. And, and I, I was thinking, how do I tell this story without it being weird? But I'm, I'm not sure it's possible. And, and so we're sitting in there, and we're both just kind of laughing and chuckling. We know that we got to change his diaper, and it's just kind of gross, and uh, it's hard to see anything good in the situation. But he kicks the door shut, and um, and Tara and I looked at him, and he was laying on the ground in his own filth, his own waste, and he had these three items, and he was playing with them, and he randomly had them set up like this with the cross here and the little man right here and the stone right here. And Tara said, do you see what he's doing? And I was like, oh, my, this is amazing. This, is, this went from a little boy needing his diaper changed to, like, this is the gospel. Is it not? Like, this is mankind and our, you got walk, walk with me, people. You, you got, this is us and our brokenness, and we cannot do anything but lay in our own, our own sin and filth. And then we've got the cross and the stone rolled away and the resurrection and Jesus. And I chuckled with Tara as I said, see, do you not see the gospel in it? And she saw it before I even did. Now, of course, that's, that's a silly example. Um, but for us as Christians, we see everything through uh, this gospel lens. And so that means you find hope in heartache. That means when you come to the end of your own strength, maybe it's this week, maybe it's in a relationship, maybe it's financially, and you know that God is still working even when you're not strong enough. It means when you feel like your story is coming to an end, there's no way God can redeem it. There's no way that he can use it for his glory. He does because the resurrection shows that there is always hope for those who place their faith in the Lord. So I hope that through tonight, it helps you to see these things um, in a whole new light. Before we jump into verse 16, just to recap from last week, verses 1 through 6, we talked about this gospel arc, this kind of upside down arc. Uh, verses 1 through 6 showed us creation and fall, the need for a Savior. Verses 7 through 10 showed the righteousness of the Savior. David's uh, righteous behavior points us to Jesus' righteousness and uh, his perfection. 
He's fully God, but fully man, and yet he was sinless as a man. In verses 11 through 15, uh, we saw this Egyptian boy who switched kingdoms. He went from uh, serving an Egyptian king to serving King David. And we see, of course, the invitation that you and I have to leave our old life, just like the disciples, whether it be leaving uh, their fishing nets behind or what have you, and following Jesus Um, that is the invitation. And so tonight, we're going to see the last three components of this gospel arc because we talk about redemption, the work of Jesus, and restoration, uh, the mission and plan of God. So follow along with me, if you can. Verse 16. And when he had taken him down, so that's the Egyptian servant who is taking David down to... uh, See where the Amalekites are. Behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. Verse 18. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. And David brought back all. You see how he, the thoroughness of what was done here. Verse 20, And David, ca- David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's Spoil. So David conquers, and this um, this is all David's spoil. Fourth thing we see. So the first three we saw last week. The fourth thing we see in this gospel arc is the work of the Savior. So this is redemption. This is what Jesus did two thousand years ago on the cross. Of course, we see David in this particular passage showing us this is him in his rescue mission. This is the actual work. You can talk about it all day long, um, but this is him actually fighting the battle. And of course, spiritually speaking, we know Jesus did that uh, when he died on the cross for your sin and for my sin. Verses 16 through 18, it shows um, the enemy rejoicing, does it not? It shows the enemy celebrating, and they're in this place of vulnerability. And David says, this is when I'm going to attack. you got to think of the celebration. They probably thought, man, David is a fool. There's nothing he can do. And yet that's when David comes and takes his people back. You don't have to uh, look very far to see the enemy rejoicing in our culture, right? Uh, You can turn on the news, (laughs) whether it be in the morning or at noon or at night. any, any news station will show you uh, the enemy rejoicing through all of the junk that we have in our culture. You've got to imagine 2,000 years ago that when Jesus dies on that cross, the old devil was probably celebrating, huh? Thinking, <laughs> this, is, this is half of Genesis 3.15. When God curses the serpent and says, you will strike his heel, yet he being the offspring of Eve, will crush your head. The old devil, through uh, the death of Jesus, strikes the heel of God, and yet three days later in the resurrection, the king gets his victory, as the devil in his celebration doesn't realize that crushing his head is still yet to come in the resurrection. 
So David does a couple things here. Number one, he fulfills the plan of God. Because if you go way, 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 way back, God told them, um, Moses, Joshua, take out all of these people groups from the promised land. The Amalekites were one of them. Saul didn't do this. Saul was supposed to, as king, fulfill God's word, even though it was hundreds of years old, and David does that. So this isn't just a matter, and scholars would would point this out, this isn't just a matter of David going and bringing back all of his people and, and plundering and taking back what he feels is rightfully his. This is about fulfilling God's word from hundreds of years earlier. And we see Jesus, of course, through messianic prophecy, fulfills hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy when he dies on the cross. The second thing he does is he redeems us or he shows us our worth. It says for David that he took all of these things back. How special do you think? His family, the families of his men, when they have been taken from their home and they're thinking to themselves, maybe we're going to die this way. And then that's when David rescues them. How special do you think they felt rescued by what would soon become the king? And you and I know as a basic fundamental Christian belief, we gather our value, our identity, not by how we feel, not by what the person around us tells us about ourselves, not by what we've accomplished in life, but by who God says we are. And no greater statement about our value or worth intrinsically has been made outside of the cross. When he opens his arms and dies for us, he's saying, you're worth this much. You are worth this much. My life. And I would say what sticks out most of all is the thoroughness and completeness of the work. There's no more work to be done. Now, David, you see, he's not God, and that 400 men escaped. 400 men escaped. But for you and I, we can trust that when Jesus died on the cross for our sin, there's nothing we can do to make up for a little bit that maybe slipped through the crack. Or, yeah, I think he covered most of my sin, but there was something I did back in high school that I just don't know if he can really cover that. Some of us struggle with that one or two things that we, we did that feels like, ah, I don't know if the cross was enough for that, but it was enough for all of it. So let's walk through this like we did last week in seeing how this truth, the work of the Savior, speaks into God's story as a whole, in our story personally, and then in their story as we seek to make disciples. The first one, God's story, is that God gets glory by doing the work himself. God gets glory by doing the work himself. He made sure that he was going to save us, not by including us, but by saving him us completely through his own son. So he gets all the glory. We can't ever say, man, we did some of this. You may not be able to hear this. Let me click it, see if it works here. He was pumped. This was us a couple days ago at the park. Silas had never climbed that before, uh, but he did it, and he got to the top. And every time he got to the top, he said, I did it, I did it. It's built in, even to little kids, that when they do something themselves, there's glory in it, right? There's glory in it. No one else can be um, credited with that. But God, in the same way, 
He knows that our salvation is his alone. Of course, in Ephesians chapter 2, it's the most clear in all of Scripture where he says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, listen, 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 and this is not your own doing. That's salvation. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Here's the key. So that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. God gets glory because he saves us by grace and grace alone. Then our story, for you and I tonight, how does this change the way we experience daily life? You can rest in this finished work. You can rest in this finished work. Have you ever gone home? <laughs> Maybe you feel that way right now. Have you ever gone home and, and still been... Um, just have a million things on your mind that you didn't get done today. And you go to sleep exhausted, and yet you still know there's so much left for you to do. It's frustrating, is it not? When you enter a relationship with Jesus saying, yeah, I believe he died for my sins, but I also believe I've got to to earn favor with God, and I've got to do good things for God, and God won't be happy with me unless I do X, Y, and Z, then that works-based mentality of earning approval from God and and trying to gain favor from something outside of Jesus' work on the cross will make you miserable every single day. You see, we often say in the church that what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on that cross is enough for us today. Do you believe that? What does that mean when we say that it's enough for us today? Well, let me ask you this. Where does your unrest, for those of you who are spiritually exhausted? Where where does it come from? Well, you might say, I got relationships and I got financial issues and I got health concerns and I got uh, all all kinds of stuff going on. And that's where I feel unrest. That's where my anxiety comes from and maybe some depression. And that's where I feel like junk. No, but, but what really inside of that is what causes the unrest? Like, like dig in just a little bit deeper. Because I think it's probably at least one of two things that causes the unrest. Number one, it's just your inability to do what only God can do. Like you can't save yourself. And although most people in this room wouldn't say, yeah, I'm trying to save myself. Like that's probably not coming out of our mouths. If you look at the plans you have for your own life, if you look at your, uh, your all-out attempts to make sure that you have better relationships and a better job and a better situation, deep down in your core, you're believing, this can maybe bring me the hope and the desire and the, and the love and the acceptance that I always wanted. Maybe deep down. What it's saying is, this can save you. This can take whatever's broken in your life and fix it. If you got that one relationship you've always been missing, if this over here healed itself, that's the cause of unrest. The second one would be our motivation in those things. You think about what exhausts you in your relationships. Is it not also uh, when you find that the motivation for a relationship is, well, I, I, I want not to just love somebody, not to just serve someone, but I want to be accepted. I want to be approved. I want to find favor in their eyes. So you work hard, 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 hard. Well, I got to climb the ladder because my dad always told me that if you don't do X, Y, and Z with your life, you're going to be kind of a failure. And maybe he didn't say it in so many words, but I know how he feels. So you're always chasing something. Your motivation 
Those around you might say, look at you, you got the best job around, and you're completely unsatisfied. Why? Because when your motivation is to gain something that only God can give you through what his son did on the cross, it's going to be miserable. It's going to be miserable. Let me ask you, what are you experiencing unrest in tonight? What are you experiencing unrest in? Of course, when we make disciples, when it comes to their story, everyone around us, we've got to make sure that when it comes to the work of Jesus on the cross, that we always teach them that their good deeds will never be good enough. Their good deeds will never be good enough. Here's the crazy thing about the Christian faith, is Your sinfulness, my sinfulness, deep down inside, we will always try to turn a faith-based relationship with Jesus into a works-based. It's just in us. That's why every other religion outside of Christianity makes you work for God's approval, right? Because it's just in us to desire. Like, we want to be able to check the box off spiritually and say, yeah, I'm good enough. I went to church X, Y, and Z, and I read this, and I do good things. And like, we just want to work for our favor with God. Do we not? I mean, think about this. You say, eh, I don't know. Think about this. If you're discipling someone, okay, so you're pouring into someone. It could be your child, could be a friend, whatever. You're helping them to follow Jesus. And something seems off in their life spiritually. What do you usually look for and try to uh, advise them in? Is it usually not, um, you know, are you reading God's word? Or are you, are you doing it enough? Right? Uh, how about your prayers? What's your prayer life look like? And so we start to psychoanalyze it and find out where they went wrong in their behavior in seeking God. And some of that might be legit. But isn't that funny how that becomes very quickly, we make our own prayer life a works-based thing. Our own daily devotions, a works-based thing. And we feel guilt when we don't do it right. we got to change our advice to people. Instead of looking for what they're doing wrong spiritually in the way they seek God, we have to help them to focus on what Jesus did right on the cross. Because when will you ever feel like you're seeking God well enough? <laughs> right? Well, I'm doing, I'm, ah, this is the way he wants you to see. Like, there's always brokenness when it's a works-based system. And even us that preach grace will fall into this trap over and over again. So the question is, for the people you disciple, do you believe that what Jesus did on the cross is enough? Even though today maybe you feel broken, you feel exhausted, do you trust that what he did is enough? And you know what you'll find more times than not, at least in my experience? The person across from you will probably say something along the lines of, yeah, I do trust that what he did is enough. But there's a counter question that's usually the real struggle. And that is, but am I worthy enough to receive it? I trust that God's perfect. I trust that he died for my sins, but I'm struggling to believe that I'm worth it. I'm struggling to believe that I'm worth it. And the symptoms for not believing that God is enough and and what Jesus did on the cross is enough are the same symptoms for not believing you're worthy to receive it. And so they'll confuse you sometimes. Sometimes. 
we're spending a lot of time here on this first one because it's just that crucial to the faith. You see, when it comes to feeling unworthy, it usually uh, comes from at least a couple reasons. Number one, people feel unworthy because of their intrinsic value. They just feel like, me, just as a person, I don't feel like I'm worthy. I don't feel like I'm lovable or that anyone would want to be around me or love me or, or, or whatever the case may be. And we know biblically that we don't create ourselves, um, so we don't get to define ourselves, right? God created us. He gets to determine our value. And as we already said, it is, uh, it is a high value. Or number two, that their behavior isn't good enough. And as we just mentioned, even when it comes to reading the Bible <laughs> or seeking God, uh, we can make it a workspace thing. Here's the bottom line. Who did Jesus invite to find rest in him? Everyone? But he said specifically two things, didn't he? Yeah. Weary and heavy laden. These two go together. Those of you who are spiritually exhausted, those of you who are spiritually insecure, those of you who don't feel like you have it all together, those are the people who are qualified to receive my grace. So the beauty of the gospel is the more broken that you feel, biblically, the more qualified you are to receive what he wants to give you. And it's those who don't think they're sick that have a hard time receiving his grace. It's those who feel like they got it all together, for the most part, those folks don't receive his grace. Isn't that beautiful (laughs) to know that the very thing that makes you feel horrible tonight is the very thing that qualifies you to sit in front of the feet of, of the Savior and to enjoy that rest. Verse 21. And then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. Remember, 200 out of the 600, last week we saw 200 out of the 600 said, hey, I can't do this. And they stopped following. They didn't fight the battle. 400 went on. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. Remember, the spoil is their own possessions. So they're sitting there, we won't give them any of their possessions back. Except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. So you ain't get your stuff back, you ain't get your clothes back, you ain't get your cattle back, but you can have your wife and your kids because we're throwing you a bone here. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. This is key right here. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. So this is an equality issue when it comes to the battle. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Fifth thing we see is the radical grace of the Savior. The radical grace of the Savior. So, again, we've got 
creation, we've got fall, we've got redemption, and now God is welcoming, he's inviting people into a life in Christ. This is radical grace. So doesn't this, doesn't this, uh, these few verses remind you of some New Testament stories? Maybe, uh, maybe the prodigal son, when you got the There you go, David, or Devin, you know what's going on, brother. You've got the religious, and you've got the rebellious. And so the rebellious uh, receives the same share as the religious who had been doing all the right things all along. Or how about this story? Let me read to you. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 says, For the kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus speaking, is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, so about noon, and the ninth hour, about three in the afternoon, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. So five o'clock at night, the master's still trying to find more people who want to work. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. So he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, because with the last, beginning with the last up to the first, And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or, you, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the, so the last will be first and the first last. You see, this passage, both this one in Matthew and here in 1 Samuel, it's not an issue about equality, although that is part of it. David's saying, whoever's in the heat of the battle risking their lives will get paid the same as those who are in the baggage claim area making sure their stuff don't get stolen by the river. It's an equality thing, but more than equality, it's a reminder that God is the one who really does the work, And the laborers, they serve freely, not to earn, but because they're simply servants. That's what Christianity is. Whether you've been following him for 50 years or you start following him tonight, you receive the same inheritance of heaven. That's God's grace. He promises the same to the person who's been in church their whole life and to the person who've been living in the gutter, never knew the name of Jesus until a minute or two before their own death. And they met him and they bowed a knee to him. They all received the same inheritance. 
You see, when it comes to God's story, God gets glory because his grace has no end. He's the one who does the work, and his grace is amazing. His grace has no end. Did you, um, maybe you still do, you have that grandparent or parent who when it comes to birthday time, Christmas time, they just give the best gifts. Like, you almost feel sorry for the rest of your family because you're like, man, I love all y'all. But I really look forward to seeing this grandparent or, or, or this aunt or this uncle because they just bless your socks off. And everyone around them knows, ah, we can't really compete with them. They're, they're, whether they got a lot of money or not, they are just crazy generous. It's good to have one or two of those in the family, isn't it? But that's God. That's God with his children. He wants to be known as the most generous one around. He gives to everyone. He gives to everyone who follows him. For your story, for my story, we realize the giver is glorified when we receive. The giver, that would be God, is glorified when we receive his grace. Grace, by definition, is something that we cannot earn. Right? It's weird to think that God delights in blessing us. We as the church have not done a very good job of reflecting this idea that God is incredibly generous and he delights in going above and beyond, over the top, in blessing us. Of course, we've got to be careful that we don't make this a self-centered blessing. Hey, I want a car. I want all these wonderful things. And God will bless me. We're not talking... Name it and claim it theology. But the idea that God is a blesser and he's glorified when we receive. We, uh, we went trick-or-treating a couple nights ago with Silas and we actually went to uh, a local church and, um, and we went through their trunk-or-treat deal. And we noticed after the first couple um, that... Let me be careful how I say this. They weren't necessarily being incredibly generous with the portions. I'll, I'll just say that. Now, I've been in the church trunk or treat world before where you know there's a ton of people going through and you got X amount of candy and you got you to gotta ration it, right, so that you don't run out. Because the only thing worse than not being generous is, is simply just running out, right? But we went through this whole thing and I noticed every single one of them just give you one little thing. And Silas, he had been to other um, secular, like, trunk-or-treat things. He went to one of the campuses over here, and, like, they gave a bunch of candy. So he was used to, like, reaching in and grabbing a bunch. And now he was kind of having to slow his roll. And it made me cringe every time that he would get close, because we were standing in line quite a bit, and someone would be sitting there next to their trunk with the thing, and they would give one candy, and Silas, on his own, would reach in to grab more, and you could tell they would just, like, not move an inch, and you're like, oh, this feels so awkward. They do not want to give my little boy more candy, and, and I understand, I totally understand, but he doesn't understand, and so we're just saying, no, you can't have more, and then you go to the next one, and you get one piece of candy, and then you dive in for more. No, buddy, you, got, you can't go to more. and it feels so weird, does it not? And I told, 
I told Tara, I said, man, it almost be worth when it comes to us as the church, because whether it was another local church or this local church, we're all the church together, right? It'd almost be best for us <laughs> to not do it at all um, if we're not going to be incredibly over-the-top generous. Because we're not reflecting a God who gives over-the-top gifts. We reflect that in the things that we do. You see, because the way that we view oftentimes receiving is that we receive based on our worth, right? It's always this goes back to the the value, the worth part. Here's the thing about receiving from God. This isn't an issue about your own value. The issue is always God's grace. This isn't about you and if you're worthy to receive it as much as it is. God is just by definition an amazing, abundant giver. If I came to you at Christmas and I gave you a gift and you told me, you know what? Ah, just don't feel like I've been a very good member of the congregation this year. And I just, yeah, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. How do you think I'd feel about that? I'd be like, hmm, odd. But to some degree, wouldn't, wouldn't you feel kind of offended? Right? Because givers are glorified when people receive. So the church has got to get good at receiving. I've said this before, but isn't it odd that the church and conservative Americans have made not receiving things like a virtue? Oh, don't, don't, don't give me that. Like if I came up to each one of you right now and I just took out five bucks at a time, gave you each five bucks one at a time, how many of you be like, no, 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 please, please, I don't need it, I don't need it. Like if I just wanted to bless you with a $5 bill, how many of you would feel really awkward in receiving it? Like, it would be hard for you just to receive a blessing of $5, would it not? We've made it a virtue to not receive, and yet the nature of our faith is receiving. There's a disconnect, is there not? For their story, when we disciple others, we have to teach them to be reflectors of God's grace, not retractors. Retractors mean to, to pull back. To be reflectors, people who receive it and then reflect it back and not retractors. So how do you teach that? Well, you do what David did in verse 23. If you go back to verse 23, he teaches the men that this battle, even though 400 of you went out and actually fought the battle, the victory did not come from you. This ain't your victory. This ain't your spoils. You can say all day long, as we're taking this herd off into the distance, this is David's spoils. But guess what? It's God's. God gave the victory. The other day, um, Silas, we were playing in his room. And it was just me and him all day long. Mama, she was with her, her family uh, in Wichita having a fun girls' day thing. And it was just me and Silas. And, and I got to kind of see him a lot more than I, I normally do, honestly. And we were in his playroom. And I said, let's play trucks. And so we got down, we started playing trucks. And at first, like the first 10 seconds, it was awesome. And then he grabbed my truck. Now, for those of you who got kids, he's an he's a only child, so he's going through that, you know, just a selfish little guy right now. He grabs my truck, and he says, no, we're not playing with any of it. I said, all right. And we've told him a million times, but you've got to share. You've got to do it. It shows love, and it honors and respect, blah, 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 blah. So then I say, okay, let's play something else. 
So we start playing something else, basketball. And he, after a minute, he comes and takes the basketball and he runs away. And I say, Silas, where are you going? And he says, we're not playing with any of it. And I pulled him back in. I said, buddy, you got control issues. Let's talk about life. You can't control everything and you're being selfish. And we were doing the same routine as always and explaining why sharing is good. But it just wasn't clicking. Like you can tell someone to give all day long. But if they don't want to give, they don't want to give. And the root issue is he believes that it's his and he believes that if it leaves his hands, he'll never get it back. He doesn't want to lose it because that's what happens when you think that you earned something. You want to keep it. And so I said, you know what? Let's do this different. I said, Silas, do you want to know whose stuff this is? All these toys. I said, it's not yours. I said, this is God's. He's going to take him back. And I said, every single toy here is God's. I said, you see the cars and this house? I said, it's not mommy or dad. It is God's. Do you know who God shared it with? Who? You and me. And we walked through this whole idea of it actually being God's and that we are the ones who he shared it with. And I tell you what, in his little two-year-old mind, like something, something snapped into to gear and he realized, like, a change now. This isn't mine to cling to. I didn't, I didn't earn it. It's not mine. And his demeanor started to change now. Did it change permanently? <laughs> no. We will have to make this a, a reminder for a while. When you're discipling others, if you don't want to see them be retractors of grace, to be like the righteous or the religious in Luke 15, the prodigal son, or the laborers who complain in Matthew 20, you've got to help them to receive and recognize this is God's salvation. He's the only one who can save you, and he freely shared it with us. It is a gift from him. He did not have to give it to you. You can't earn it, and there is a freedom in that. And you've got to remind those you disciple all the time what God has shared with us in salvation. Last but not least, five verses all crammed together as we end chapter 30. When David came to Ziklag... He sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah. So those are the Israelites, remember? Saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And it was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negeb, in Jatir, in Aror, in Sipmoth, in Eshtimoa, in Rechal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Bor-Ashan, in Akthak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. You guys know how to pronounce all those, right? If you can't, you just do it as quick as you can and get to the other side. The last thing we see, number six in this gospel arc, everything from creation to the fall to redemption, now we see this. This is how the story ends. This is the part that we're in right now. And it's the restoration of all things. When Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, end times started. They've been going on for 2,000 years, and they will go on until God says everything is done. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. 
the restoration of all things. So what David does is he actually takes from the Gentiles and he blesses the Israelites. But that's actually the opposite of what we see throughout most of the Bible and certainly with Jesus. His ministry when he came to earth was for who? The Jews. Because he was the Messiah of the Jews. But then as it expands, it goes to the Gentiles. Thank God, otherwise none of us in this room would would be saved. And yet David, actually he does the reverse here. And he blesses the Israelites from the spoils of the Gentiles. And so David fulfills God's plan by restoring a city, but Jesus restores all things as part of God's plan. Let me just ask you this, just for fun. Let's just poke, because I figured by now y'all would be about ready to sleep, and so I wanted to mess with you a little bit. And we can do this on a Wednesday night, right? Um, as we kind of start to wrap up, this, uh, this looking through a gospel lens, and we get to this end part of restoration of all things. Let me ask you this. The election is coming up. How do you feel? Don't answer, please. How do you feel about this election? I know you got emotions. I know you got opinions. We all do. It's really easy to get sucked into this idea that this country is going to fall apart and everything's going to be horrible. And if we elect this person, we're going to go downhill this, at this pace. If we elect another person, we're going to go downhill a little bit slower pace. But we're going downhill and it just feels kind of hopeless, does it not? What does it mean to look at this election through gospel lens? Well, it means if you know how the story ends, that there's a re- restoration of all things and we'll get to those verses in a second, then it doesn't really matter what happens. Now, I mean, it matters, but in the big scheme of things, does it really matter what happens in an election in 2016 in this one tiny little nation uh, (laughs) amongst all these other nations, amongst one planet and God's big galaxy? Like, don't you think his plan supersedes the outcome of an election? Of course it does. And so if you take it one step further and you say, okay, well, when we get to this in a second, part of the restoration of all things means that you and I get to be disciple makers and we get to actually be a part of this. What happens to the mission of God if we elect the wrong person in this election? Let's just say it all goes downhill. And let's say we, through some laws that are changed and, and a little bit of um, persecution, start to actually experience real persecution in this country, whether it be 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years. What happens to God's mission and his plan to restore all things? It probably, let's be honest, spiritually probably get better than ever. Because very quickly you'd find out who is a disciple and who is not. And the church in church history, and this is how God works, whenever God's people and God, his plan, his back is up against the wall, he is always strengthened and he always is glorified and it always expands. Whenever Christianity has been close to being eradicated in the first couple hundred years, that is when it has blown up and expanded the most. So when it comes to making disciples, it could be better than ever, if that's what we really care about. That we wouldn't have to guess, are you in, are you out? That people would see very clearly what the opposite of following Jesus looks like. And when we present the gospel, It doesn't just wash together with the rest of our culture like it has for, let's be honest, the last 200 plus years. And they would say, that's real. Maybe I want that.
Now you're awake just a little bit, so we'll finish this thing out. In God's story, when it comes to the restoration of all things, it means God gets glory by creation and restoration. When it comes to uh, creating automobiles, you've got manufacturers all over this world. Even, I know it's crazy, some still left in America, who create automobiles, do they not? Not only through the engineering process, but through the manufacturing process. There is a glory in that. Like they created it. But there's also little auto body shops all around this country where they take old 1950s hot rods, 1960s trucks, and they restore them. And it's not the same as creating, but there's still a glory in it, is there not? So God created mankind, and there's a glory in that. In his image, he created us. But he also restores humanity. And there's a whole nother glory in that. But it all leads to God being glorified. For us, we are the first fruits of God's creation. Now, this is a big concept, and I'm introducing it to you with four minutes left. And so it might blow your mind, and we can't get into it too much. But if you look at Romans chapter um, well, let me, let me back up. If you look at Revelation uh, chapter 21, it says that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, right? A new Jerusalem, this time where there, there's not going to be any tears and streets of gold, all that good stuff. So the restoration of all things we see is how the Bible ends. But if you look at Romans chapter 8, starting in, say, verse um, either 11 or 15. If you look at James chapter 1, verse 18, you will see... Uh, Both James and Paul say that Christians, believers, sealed with the Holy Spirit, are the first fruits of God's redemptive plan. So if it feels like you're not part of this world, and it feels awkward, and you're yearning for a home that's not here, that makes sense. Everything around us, and this is where Romans 8 is so beautiful, it says that all of creation is groaning, it's moaning, it's groaning, it's waiting to be restored, to be redeemed. And there's one little group of people that has tasted this new redemption. And that's me. That's you. That's Christians. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now here's the thing. Romans 8 also tells us that when you place your faith in Jesus and you are adopted into the family of God, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a beta test. You know, companies do a beta test where they send a new program, a newly created program out, and they let the public, to some extent, use it, even though it's not the final finished product. That's kind of what Christians are when it comes to the restoration of all things. In that, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, but we still experience tears. We still experience pain and brokenness. We know that's not how it's going to be in heaven. And so we are a new creation, but we're not to the finished product. doesn't mean we're any less saved, any less Christian. We can't be. But being adopted, sealed with the Spirit, compared to what it's going to be like in the resurrection, when not Jesus' resurrection, but when we are resurrected from the dead, when we're standing before God in our eternal state, glorified in our bodies like Jesus glorified body it's going to be a whole nother ball game and it's going to be beautiful so I say all that to say for us if you feel like you're not quite a finished product 
It's because biblically, even saved and sealed with the Spirit, this isn't the way that it's going to end. And you can take hope in that. Last but not least, when it comes to making disciples, we invite others into restoration by taking serious the mission of God. If you look at Matthew chapter 24, this is where Jesus explains the signs of the end times. His disciples asked him, what are end times? What's going to happen? And he explains some things that are going to happen. And in verse 14, it says this. Out of all these, well, people, women are going to be running to the hills and, and you don't want to be pregnant during this time and it's going to be this and that and it's going to be crazy. All these things are like, whoa, that's, that is going to be nuts. And then there's one verse, verse 14, Matthew 24, 14. It says, and the gospel will be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. Whoa. Disciple making, seen at the end of all four gospels in the beginning of Acts chapter 1, This command to make disciples isn't just something we're doing for fun. We are partaking in the ushering end of end times. That when the gospel is preached to all nations, it's one of the many signs that this thing is starting to wrap itself up. Does that make sense? We are part of a much bigger plan. How many people, when it comes to this election, would be mad if we elect the wrong person? Why? Because it's our Christian duty, right? To, to make good decisions and, and to make a proper vote. And yet we know on a ground level the best thing you and I can do if we want to actually see this country changed is to take disciple-making serious. And yet how many of us are getting angry when the person next to us or the person in our own seat isn't taking disciple-making serious? We don't throw nearly the fuss, do we? But when God looks at his church, that's what he cares about. Not did we make the perfect vote. There is no perfect vote. But do you take God's mission serious? I think you guys have met people. I imagine you've met people, whether it be from Texas or here in America, where they say, well, I'm a fifth generation such and such. I'm a fourth generation such and such. For you and I, I pray that our legacy is not just that we would make disciples, but that we would make disciples that make disciples. That we could, at the end of this life, say, that person over there, that's a fourth generation disciple from someone I poured into in college, who poured into someone else, who poured into someone else, who poured into someone else. There's a million different things you could be known for at the end of this life, but you want to know what matters? Is you being a first fruit of restoration? Have the desire and poured your time and energy into helping other people to come into that restoration as well. So let me simply say this. When you pour into people, Are you challenging them to pour into others? Or are you simply pouring into them for their own benefit? Because disciple making is not complete until people start reproducing disciples. That's what we were created to do. That's what we're commanded and called to do. So, as you leave here tonight, and we'll wrap this up right now. As you leave here tonight, look at your life. Don't look at it through... (laughs) despair. 
Look at it through this gospel arc, through creation and through the fall and the downside and then redemption, God meeting us in our mess and then restoration. And I'll tell you what, when you realize that restoration is the way the story ends, no matter what you're going through, whether it be your relationships, your job situation, the person who's breaking your heart right now, when you know God's plan ends with the restoration of all things, there's nothing you can go through that doesn't include hope. That's your God-given right through the gospel. Not hope that it works out as perfect as you hope it does, but that it'll work out for the glory of God. Let's pray.